0: Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Brother Eggie told me he used to ride a unicycle around the neighborhood, go down the street, even rode it to school. A unicycle, right? Some of you are looking at me like, what is a unicycle, Right. Well, it's no training re- wheels. It's just one, a one-wheeled bike, right? That's, that's what a unicycle is. That's what Brother Aggie said he used to ride around. And I said, well, when you rode that, did you have knee pads, elbow pads, and a helmet? And he said, no way. No way, right? So asking around, how many of you, when you grew up, you had no idea what a seatbelt was? Let me see. You have no idea. The seatbelt was mom's arm, boom, like right that. She hits the brake, she just sticks her arm out. And, bah, that was the seatbelt. How many of you? Let me see again. How many of you, you did not wear a seatbelt growing up? Okay. Brother Michael told me he grew up, they just jump in the back of a truck, and they would just ride in the back of the truck to the, to the grocery store. How many of you just rode in the back of the truck? You didn't even need a seat sometimes. Let me see. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, okay. How many of you, this, this is a strange one, but, but how many of you, you grew up, and if you wanted a drink of water, your mom or dad answered to you like, there's the water spigot. How many of you drank water directly out of the water? Let me see, there's fewer hands there. Get them higher. Let me see. Let me see, right? These are all, all of us, our in, our insides, they're just so polluted right now, right? I mean, we're just we're dying. I can close my eyes, and, and if I let my mind wander far enough back, man, I can I can taste like that copper end of that water hose. I can. I can let my. And then the first little bit of water out of the hose, that was always warm. It was always hot because it was stuck in the hose. How many of you know what I'm talking about right now? Some of you are looking like, you're gross, you know? I would never do that. How many of you, grown up, you had the five-second rule? If something hit the ground, it didn't matter? You had five seconds. You just pick it up, whew, five seconds, throw it in your mouth, and just eat it, right? You know the five-second rule? Don't lie. How many of you, it was a 10-second rule? Let me see. Okay, you're in church. Don't lie, not lie in church. How many of you, that was maybe more like a 25-second rule. You know, that, that, that hot dog hit the ground and rolled for a little while, and then you still picked it up and ate it. Huh? How many of you? Yeah, okay. I'm reading a book right now. I'm reading a book right now called The Coddling of the American Mind. In the book, he talks about how we have raised... A fragile generation and his question at the beginning of the book is when did we become so fragile I remember when Amanda man and I got the news that we were going to have Gabriel I remember going through the house plugging all of the electrical outlets baby proofing the counters and the and the uh, the cabinets making sure there were no harmful radiation getting the little humidifier that we stuck in the room because the baby had to breathe the right kind of air if the baby breathed the, the normal air that the rest of us breathe man he might get sick and and, and you know he uh, might die i remember going through the house with Gabriel or when we when we were expecting Gabriel baby proofing the house making sure everything was okay making sure nothing, you know everything was in order had all of the baby proof things Made sure we had just the right formula, just the right food, just the right seats, the right car seats, the right straps. Man, we were baby-proofing everything. And then I remember when we got the news that we were going to have Jesse, our youngest. And then we baby-proofed nothing. (laughs) We were like, yeah, we've had three at this point. Kids are really resilient. You have to try to get rid of them, you know? And Jesse was like, yeah, go ahead, play with the electrical outlet. It'll be fine. It won't hurt you. It'll zap you a little bit. He'll entertain himself that way, right? This is what happens, right? We, we get this news like, oh, my goodness, we have to protect. Here's a, here's, a, here's a line from his book. We raise our kids so that they are unaccustomed to facing anything on their own, including risk, failure, failure. And hurt feelings, and when we do, our future is threatened and our children underdeveloped. There's this fear that everything our children see or do or could experience that it could hurt them, it could hinder them, it might somehow, it might somehow affect them. So we've raised a generation of children who are unaccustomed to facing anything that hurts, that are unaccustomed to facing anything that scares them, who are unaccustomed to facing anything that challenges them. If they didn't get enough playing time on the team, instead of telling them to get better, we told them it was the coach's fault and we took them off the team. If they didn't like the teacher, it wasn't because they weren't listening. It's because that teacher was unfair, and we let them quit the class. If they got in an argument on the playground, we immediately picked up the phone, called that other parent, and asked them why their kid got in an argument with our kid on the playground. If they didn't like it, if they didn't enjoy this school, we put them in another school. If they didn't pass the class, it wasn't their fault. Wasn't their effort? Wasn't their work? It was always someone else's. And the argument is, well, we're doing this because we want to protect our kids. We want to keep our kids safe from difficulties or challenges. And we want to do this for their good. The book argues, the sociologists are arguing now, that this this is actually hindering children in our society. It's actually hurting them. And in many ways, have you have you noticed this? This this is their argument. And in many ways, this is why we have a society that is so easily offended. Have we lived in a time where we have been so easily offended at any and every little thing, at anything? We have to be so politically correct, and we have to be so careful how we say it because we might. We might hurt their feelings, and Lord knows they can't have their feelings hurt. I remember we, I remember we, we got our pool, and, and this summer we put, our, put up a pool in our backyard. Gabriel decides on the second day the pool is there, Gabriel decides to get on top of the picnic table that's in the back of the yard. And he decides he's going to jump from the picnic table into the pool. And I'm sitting across the way, and I'm watching this play out, and I'm thinking in my mind, oh, my goodness, He might fall and he might hurt himself and he might get he might scrape up his knee. He might give himself a concussion. He might break his arm. He could hurt his leg. I mean, what would happen if he fell and he got a he got a hurt elbow? What would happen? And I'm watching this and I go to say, Gabriel, don't do that. It's dangerous, right? I go to say, Gabriel, don't and Amanda goes, it's okay. And I go, he might get hurt. And she said, do you remember what you did at your mom and dad's pool? So it plays back in my mind. My mom and dad pull up a pool in the backyard. My brothers and I get a ladder. We lean it up against the edge of the house. We climb up to the top of the roof. We look down at the pool. We back up to the peak of the house. And we take off running off of the roof and into the pool. And it was a blast. And I'm okay for it. And we've, we've raised a generation of children. The, the, book, the, the entire premise of the book is we've raised a generation of children who are afraid of risk because it might hurt. They're afraid of challenges because it's scary. They're afraid of doing difficult things because nothing's difficult. And anytime something is difficult or challenging or hard, well, mom or dad are supposed to come down and take care of it for me. And they're supposed to make sure everybody gives me exactly the way that I want it, and it's handled the way that I am. I mean, Lord forbid we actually give trophies to the people who win, and we give nothing to the people who lose. I mean, everybody has to win, so let's give them all trophies. Again, this is is one of his ideas in his book, right? The idea of everyone gets a trophy. This is one of his titles. Everyone gets a trophy because somebody might get offended if they don't get a trophy. Well, listen, if you don't win... You don't get a trophy. This is the way, this is, this is it. This is how it's supposed to work. And yet we've raised an entire generation who, well, what you said offended me. There are some of you right now who are thinking, well, you know what, Pastor? You just offended me by saying that. Send me an email. I'll delete it. I mean, I'll read it. Exodus 16 is this. Exodus 16 is God letting his children face a difficult situation that is challenging to them. It's difficult on them. And he uses this difficult situation as an opportunity for discipleship and growth. He allows his children to face A difficult situation and he doesn't call the school office he allows his children to face a difficult hard thing and then he uses this as a way to teach them something about himself you remember last week Exodus chapter 15 they are without water and being without water for three days God then shows up and says, look, you have to follow me. I'll provide for you. You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to be obedient. And what happens? Man, right over the next hill, right? they see Elam. Where there's these palm trees and there's these springs and there's water and there's plenty of water for not only all the Israelites and their children, but there's plenty of water for the Israelites, their children and their cattle. And that's where they are. Chapter 16 begins with the children of Israelite taking their journey. Look at verse number one. They took their journey from Elam. Well, well why would you do that? You have, you have palm trees. And you have, you have streams, and you have, you have rivers, and everything's comfortable, and nothing's, nothing's difficult. There's no risk. Well, why move on from Elam? How many of you know why they move on from Elam? Because Elam is not the promised land. Why move on from Elam? Because Elam is not all that God desires to give them. God does not want to give them simply springs and palm trees. God wants to give the children of Israel a land that flows with milk and honey. The milk and honey, that's far better than springs and palm trees. God wants to give them something better. And so God is picking them up out of their comfort zone where life is easy. Things are normal. Things are, there's no risk. There's no fear. There's no challenge here. And he wants to pick them up from this and he takes them on their journey. That's verse one. And he took them, he took, their, they took their journey from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel. So everybody went with them, and they came into the wilderness of sin. Time out. You say, pastor, God led them into the wilderness of sin. Okay, this word sin is not sin as in a, a disobedient act to God. The word sin here is used because they are in the region of Mount Sinai. Right and Mount Mount Sinai, man, standing right over where God is leading his people. Mount Sinai is standing there, and this is the wilderness of sin, which is the wilderness of Sinai, because it's right there next to Mount Sinai. So this is not God leads his people into the wilderness of sin, as in they're going to go be disobedient. If that's what you're thinking, you're, you're thinking the wrong thing. He says that, which is between Elam and Sinai. So it's called sin because it's short for Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after their departing out of the land of Egypt, look at verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You say, well, if everybody thinks it's wrong, then it must be wrong. The Bible is proof. Everybody can think something, do something, and say something, and even though everybody is saying it, and even though everyone is doing it, and even though everyone is a part of it, it can still be wrong. In fact, most of the time, when everyone else is participating in it, most of the time it is something that's wrong. Look what they do, verse 2. The whole congregation of the children of Israel murmur against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness... And the children of Israel said unto them, "Would to God that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by flesh pots. That's just that's a funny way of saying like a crock pot. All right, we had we had big big bowls of meat. We had we had stew. We had pozole. Right, I saw some of that earlier this afternoon. Right, we had all, we red flesh pots, and we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." This is, this is just, you know, when you read this verse, you don't really know if you should laugh or if you should cry, right? Because you read this verse, like, what are these people thinking? So, verse seven, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, look, give me your attention. He's saying, Look at me, give me your attention. I will rain bread from heaven for you. Time out. Time out. Wow. But that, that, that's it, right? I will rain. Bread. Remember last chapter? They murmured, they complained, they grumbled, they griped. God gave them springs. God gave them palm trees. God said, you can trust me. I know where I'm going. I'm not lost. Now here's this chapter. Now we're hungry, which is, by the way, a legitimate need. But now we're hungry. We've been traveling for a little while and we need some food. We're starving. This is for our, this is for our own strength. This is for the strength of our wives, our children. We're vulnerable. Without food, we're weak. We're vulnerable. They have a legitimate need. So what does God say? Okay, I'll rain, I'll rain bread from heaven for you. I'm certain that bread from heaven actually translates blueberry pop-tarts. I'm certain that in the Hebrew, that's what that means. And the whole people shall go out, and they shall gather a certain rate every day, that I might prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. And it shall come to pass on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they daily gather. Look, God walks them out from Elam where it's palm palm trees and springs. He walks them out into a difficult, challenging situation. And God, in his wisdom, knows he is going to make bread fall from heaven in order to feed his children. And let, he lets them face a difficult situation to see if they will do what. Look at the verse again. That I may prove them, verse 4, whether they will walk in my law or No. He lets them face something difficult so that they might grow. That they would learn. That they might be obedient. That they would understand that when you go the way of the Lord, man, God always takes care of us. So Moses and Aaron, they go tell the children of Israel, verse 6, at even... Then ye shall know, so in the evening time you will know, that the Lord hath brought you out of the land of Egypt. That, verse 6 is another funny idea. Because you remember all the plagues? You remember all the plagues? remember the, the blood to water, the locusts, the, the, the death angel, right? The frogs? Just in case you thought all of that was happenstance. Just in case, all, because we forgot, all the miracles that God did in Egypt... Just in case you think that was Moses, that wasn't me. That was, you remember the Red Sea? What was the Red Sea? It was a sign that this is God delivering you so the water parts. And just one more, one more evidence now. God's going to rain bread from heaven down for you so that you would know that this is him. That this is what he did for you. That he brought you out of Egypt, verse 6. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. For he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we? What a great question. And what are we that we murmur, that you murmur against us? And Moses said, this shall be. When the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat and in the morning bread to the fool, For that the Lord heareth your mur- murmurings which ye have murmured against him. And what are we? Your mur- murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Two ideas. Number one we see the spirit of grumbling. We see the spirit of grumbling. Do you remember what the children of Israel did in Exodus chapter 2 when Moses showed up and he said, I'm here as a messenger from God and God told me that He is going to deliver you. Your cry has come up to the ears of God and God sent me here to deliver you. Do you remember what happens next? Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes away their straw but makes them still make brick. And what do the children of Israel say about Moses? You only came here to kill us. You didn't come here to deliver us. You only came here to kill us. Ah, oh, life is so hard. Ah, oh, it's so difficult. Now we've now we got to make bricks with no straw. Now we're facing something hard. You're only here to kill us. Remember that? Remember, God takes them out of the land of Egypt. He leads them toward the Red Sea. Now they're standing at the Red Sea on this side, mountains on either side, and here comes Pharaoh and his army behind him. And do you remember what the whole congregation of Israel says to Moses? Do you remember what the whole congregation says? You're only brought us here to kill us. That's what you're doing because there were no graves in Egypt because there weren't enough places to bury us Moses you're actually working for the devil himself and you're trying to kill us You remember that? You remember they go across the Red Sea, God splits the water, dry land for the Israelites, Pharaoh and his army hits it, it goes to mud, God obliterates Pharaoh and his army. The children of Israel on the other side, they sing for a little while, then they get thirsty. You remember what they said last chapter? How many of you remember what they said last chapter? If you haven't caught on by yet, you're not listening? Remember last chapter, you only brought us here to kill us. There weren't graves in Egypt. Oh, you're doing this to just get rid of us, aren't you? And now chapter 16, what are they saying? You only brought us here to kill us. You know what they say in chapter 17? Take a guess. Take a guess. You all lay brought the same thing. A spirit of grumbling. We've said this already. Grumbling does three things. Number one, grumbling distorts the past. Grumbling distorts the past. Look what they say in verse number three. The children of Israel said, Why? Or, or the children of Israel said to them, Would to God that we had died in the, in the hand of the Lord in the, land of the, in the land of Egypt, when we had sat by flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full. Now, now, whether they had meat in Egypt or not, that's debatable. Whether they had pots of meat while they were in Egypt, that's debatable. But the issue here is, what they're saying is, do you remember life in Egypt? Do you remember when in Egypt we just sat around strumming the banjo, eating meat all day long, singing songs by the campfire. Oh, days in Egypt, those were the good old days. Oh, remember Egypt. How many of you remember Egypt? How many remember Exodus chapter 2, when the children of Israel cry out unto the Lord? Because the persecution and the affliction is strong against them. And what did they say to God in Exodus chapter 2? Oh God, life is good here. We got we got pots of meat. We got banjos and songs, we got campfires and kumbaya. I mean everything is good here, God. Thank you so much for letting Joseph come to Egypt. Is that what they were saying in Exodus chapter two? Yes or no? No, what were they doing then? God, we're miserable. God, spare us. God, there's mass genocide happening. They're taking all of the boys under the age of two and they're throwing them into the Nile River. And they're forcing us into slave labor. Oh God, please deliver us. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, and the cry of the Israelites came up to the Lord and the Lord heard their cry. Rumbling distorts the past. Hear me on this. Here's the application for you and for me. Chances are, if you complain about everything right now, you complained about everything back then. Chances are, if you complain about everything right now, You complained about everything back then. But a grumbling, complaining, whining spirit distorts the past. Oh, back when I was in college, that's when stuff was good. Back when I was single, that's when stuff was good. Back when I had no kids, back when the kids were in the house, those were the good old days. Now, Sometimes when my wife and I are going through An exhausting day with our children. How many parents in the room understand the term? Exhausting day with our children, right? Three of us? Three of us are being honest tonight. Okay, thank you. Amanda and I are the only ones that. Sometimes when we have one of those exhausting days with our children, we're laying in bed, and Amanda, she's far more spiritual than I am, she'll reach her hand over, she'll put her hand on mine, and she'll go, David, let's remember today when we are empty nesters. Because there's this tendency that your children get out of the house. Now it's just the two of you. We're like, oh, we just we really miss our kids. And man, life was so good when our kids were here. And she's going, let's remind ourselves when our kids are no longer here that there were days where we did not want our kids here, right? What 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 is she doing? She's helping me learn this lesson right here. Chances are if you complain about everything now, you complained about everything then. And should you get your way tomorrow, guess what you'll do? You'll complain then too. That's the spirit of a complainer. The same thing's happening to them. Grumbling spirit distorts the past. Number two. You say, Pastor, we already went over all this, but what a grumbling spirit does. Why are we doing it again? Because it happened in chapter 2. Because it happened in chapter 15. Because it happened in chapter 16. Because it happened in chapter 17. Because it happens all the way through the rest of the book. You want to know what the rest of Exodus is about? A grumbling people against the Lord their God. Grumbling distorts the past. Number two. Grumbling dramatizes the present. This this is this is fun. Watch this verse three. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, so here's their accusation against God. God, you only brought us here to starve us. How many of you remember when you were kids, you'd go, Oh, I'm starving! How many of you ever said that as a kid? Oh, I'm starving. Whenever I did that, my mom would go, David. There's children in this world who have had not have any meal for days. David, you're not starving. It's only been 30 minutes since you ate. <laughs> oh, I'm starving. Look, look, look at me, children, all the children in the room. Be careful now. A complaining spirit, a complaining spirit dramatizes, dramatizes the present. That's the worst Teacher I ever had. Really? Because you said that about last year's teacher. And the year before. And the year before. And the year before. And every year since you've been in school. And I suppose that of all the teachers, someone has to be the best, and someone has to be the worst. But what do we mean when we say that? Uh, Well, what do we do? We engage in a complaining spirit. What are we doing? We over-dramatize. We over-dramatize. This is what they're doing. You brought us here to starve us. Let me show you something very interesting. Go to to chapter 17. Look at verse number 3. Look at verse 3. Ready? And the people thirsted there for water and the people murmured against Moses, there's a pattern, and said, wherefore is it that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt? Now now look at this. To kill us and our children, talk about dramatizing, to kill us and our children and our cattle. Time out. Chapter 16. If in chapter 17 they have cattle, what do they have in chapter 16? Cattle. So, if, if you really thought you were going to starve, let's grill up some steaks. Right, so chapter 17, you have cattle. But chapter 16, what are they complaining about? You we're going to starve. And if I were Moses, I would go, look behind you. Beef, it's what's for dinner. <laughs> and Moses is a far more patient man than I am. They have cattle. They're on the brink of starvation, but they have cattle. Which means they could milk their animals. They can make cheese. They probably don't know how to make ice cream, but maybe they do, I'm not for sure. But they certainly have meat. So if you were going to starve, you could at least have some meat to eat. You could at least have Hey, isn't this the way it is in the heart of the complainer? It's not actually need. It's a perceived need. Right? Because if, if the need was, we actually have to, we're actually going to starve. If that were the need, they would have slaughtered the cattle. And then no one's in danger of starving. It's not an actual need, it is a perceived need. This, this is what might happen to us. And since this is what might happen to us, oh man, we got to murmur, complain, and the whole congregation's got to get in on this thing. exaggeration, dramatization can be a serious sin. And it's a serious sin because exaggeration, embellishment, dramatization, it's a way that we slander other people but make ourselves look good. For them, it's a way that they make God look like God does not care about them because they're starving. They're starving. So this is a way that they can slander God, they can attack Moses, they can attack Aaron. You're only trying to starve us to death! But in reality, they're nowhere near starving. So the application for you and for me, we should really be careful of the way we say what we say. We should really be careful when we repeat a story or when we make a complaint or when we bring up a concern or when we identify a problem we should we should really be careful not to embellish or exaggerate or dramatize it in a way that causes this person to look bad and me to look good look out right here because we get really good at a very young age, at leaving out necessary parts of the story so that we leave out the whole truth and we only give part of the story that makes that person look bad and makes us look good. That's the same thing they're doing. They're leaving out a very important detail. And the very important detail is, they have all kinds of meat to eat, should they choose. I don't believe that when we do this that we intentionally set out to tell a lie about somebody. I think it's probably more to our sin nature. It's done instinctively. We want to make ourselves not look as bad as what we know we really are. So we make them look worse than us, and we leave out the very important details involving how we are wearing, were or are in the wrong. Number three: grumbling dishonors God. That, that's really chapter f- verse number four, down to verse number eight. They' are grumbling people, and because they're grumbling people, they grumble against Moses. but Moses isn't who they're really grumbling at. This is the title of the sermon. They were a nation of whiners. Chapter chapter 16 I wrote across the top. A nation of whiners revealed. Because this chapter is God pulling the curtain back and going, look, you did this in chapter 2. You did this in chapter 15. You're doing this in chapter 16. You're going to do it in chapter 17. You're going to do it all the way to the end. There's 40 chapters in this book. You're going to do it all the way to the end. And by the way, when the, when, when the judges start, so like now they're in the land, when that starts, do you know what they do then too? You guessed it. They complained, right? Here we, here we go. It dishonors God in two ways. Number one, it's directed at Moses. Number two, it demonstrates immaturity. So a word first to parents, leaders, teachers, people in authority, maybe even at your office. As a leader, you would do well To learn to encounter someone who is complaining the way that Moses handled complaints. Right? When when they're complaining against and at Moses, what does Moses do? He does not personalize the complaint. He doesn't let this break him. Listen, mom and dad, you you've given a, a rule in your home. You have something you want your children to do. And now they're complaining against you about it. Don't personalize the complaint. Well, I must be the worst parent ever. I mean, they said I was the worst parent ever. You're not the worst parent ever, I promise. You're not. You have your children in church. You take your kids to school. You feed them. You clothe them. You feed them well. You clothe them well. You drive them around. You're nice. You give them a bed. You're a great parent. No. My parents are the worst ones ever. I'm seven, and I should have an iPhone. Listen, if you're the worst parent, because you won't give your seven-year-old an iPhone, sign me up. Give me a badge. Give me, give me the biggest plaque, and, and I'll wear it around the office, right? Don't personalize the complaint. They're not, they're not really mad at Moses and Aaron. Who are they really mad at? They're really mad at God. Why are they mad at God? Because God isn't doing what they perceived God should do. Because God is acting like God, and they're acting like they think they're God, right? This is really the issue. We've talked about this before. This is Moses' answer. What are we? Why, why are you mad at me? Be mad at me. Don't get angry at me. I'm just doing, look, the cloud shows up, I go where the cloud goes. The, the pillar of fire shows up, I go where the pillar of fire goes. I mean, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I like the springs and I like the palm trees too, but it's moving and I'm following it because that's where the presence of the Lord is. Now I'm going. What are we? That's their answer. Look at their answer, verse number seven. The very end. And what are we that you murmur against us? He says, I'm just following God like you're following God. So don't get mad at me about about something God is choosing to do, this is a great thing. it It's directed at Moses. Number two, it demonstrates immaturity. A complaining spirit actually indicates that there is something not right in your relationship with God. You might direct it at your spouse, your boss, your kids, your parents. You might direct it at somebody in authority. You might direct it at a pastor. You might direct it at someone in your past. You might direct it at some other leader way back when. And you might direct it at them. But in the end, all you're doing is you're demonstrating your immaturity. A a personal relationship with God is just that. It's a personal relationship with God. It's you and God. It's you and God. And I'm not saying there aren't hurts, and I'm not saying there aren't difficult seasons, and I'm not saying there aren't problems along the way. And I'm not saying that there aren't authorities who abuse that authority that God has been given, that God has given to them. But listen, they will answer to God for the things they did, the things they said. But you will answer to God for how you trailed off in your relationship with the Lord. Well, somebody said something one time that really hurt my feelings. Welcome to the club. Watch. Has, who in the room can testify? Someone has said something to you that has hurt your feelings. Let me see. Raise your hand. Keep it up. Don't do a Baptist hand raise. Not like that. Okay. Raise your hand. Keep it up. Let me see. Keep it up really high. Let me see. Okay, now look around the room. A personal relationship with the Lord is just that. It's a personal relationship with the Lord. And oftentimes, when we complain or we murmur or we use what somebody else did or said as a reason for why we aren't doing all that we know we're supposed to do, oftentimes, that is a sign of our own immaturity, not their inability to be a leader. Okay, you got quiet, so I'll move on to point number two. There's a spirit of gratitude. Okay, so if I were God at this point, you know what I would do? I would pick up a lightning bolt and I would just zap them all. And I would go, I'll find somebody else. And God doesn't do that. He's nicer than I am. Look at verse number four. So the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Wow. (laughs) Not, Not just that. I'll rain enough bread from heaven for you that it will meet your everyday need. And on the weekend, I'll rain twice as much bread as you need so that way on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, which, which he'll establish in chapter 20, so that way on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath, you can have a day of rest. Right? So six days a week, you go out, you gather up enough. Most of it's just for the one day. But... On that weekend, what you do is you take twice the amount, so that way on the first day, which would actually be Saturday for them, but whatever, on the last day, you do not have to go out and gather because I want you to rest. So God's doing two things for them. God is meeting their physical, material need. God is saying, I know you need bread, but you need to know I'm God. And if I choose to rain bread, I can rain bread because I'm God. That's how good I am. And not only am I good, but also, I'll give you a day off on the weekend. That you don't gotta go out and gather that day, but you've gathered enough the day before, and now you have plenty of bread for the entire weekend. So God does does three things then to to show the spirit of gratitude. Number one, God is patient. God is patient. Despite their bad attitude, their over-dramatization, despite their dishonoring spirit, God generously promises that He will give them bread every single day. Notice there's not even an expiration date. It's like, okay, I'll give you bread for a week, but after that, you're on your own. Doesn't say that. He just no expiration date. I'll, I'll rain bread down from you. Every day you're alive, I'll give you as much bread as you want, I'll give you as much bread as you need. You can gather everything in that you could possibly take in for the day. Uh, you gather in sufficient amount for your family, your wife, your children. You gather it every day. But here's the thing. You try to keep it overnight, and it's going to go bad. Isn't that an interesting provision? Isn't that an interesting provision? Well, why? But number two. Number one, God's patient. Number two, because they needed to trust God to provide they're an agricultural people. They're farmers. This is what they are. They're shepherds. If you and I have a need, do you know what we do? We get up and we go to the store. If you and I have a need, you know what we do? We go to the store and we just buy it. You're in the middle of baking something. Ah, like, oh, needed milk. Because you do. You just pause the baking process. You can run down to 7-Eleven. You can go to Ralph's. You go to the supermarket, wherever it is you shop, okay? You can go, and you can get some milk. Now you got it. This is not the same way in their day. This is not, the, this is not, their, this is not their society. They're an agricultural people, which means you did not just live day by day. You lived according to season by season. So when it was harvest season, you harvested. But when it was sowing season, you sowed. And you better make sure you sow during sowing season. Otherwise, you weren't going to harvest during harvest season. And when it came into harvest, you didn't leave it in the field. You went out to the field, and you gathered it all. You stored some. You preserved others. This was the way that they were taught to live. This was the the, the culture in which they had lived. And by the way, that's the better part of wisdom. But what God does here is God says, I don't want you to store up anything. I I want you to gather I want you to preserve it. I want you to can. What I want you to do is I want you to take enough for today and then trust me with the rest. So God is doing two things. God is asking them first, will you trust me today? God is asking them second, will you trust me tomorrow? That's a more difficult question, isn't it? Will you trust God today? It's 6.05. God's been pretty good to us today. Okay, God, I trust you today. Okay, what about tomorrow? You see, they were asked to trust God tomorrow in what way? In that they were not allowed to gather enough manna or quail for tomorrow. No, 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 don't don't take enough for tomorrow. Only take enough for today. Which means this. They were not allowed to have leftovers. They were not allowed to have leftovers. Sitting on my office is loads and loads and loads of leftovers from the Filipino fellowship that we just went to, right? My children will not have to eat for about two and a half weeks, right? Right? It's just warmed up lumpia from this point forward. Here's where they are. Here's where they're at. No leftovers. You only take what you need today. Trust me for tomorrow. I understand that in a, in a, in a room like this, surrounded by people like we're surrounded right now, reading the Bible in church, great day, it's easy for us to go, hey, pastor, I trust God today. Good. What about tomorrow do you, do you trust them with your tomorrow yeah but what if and my kids want to be missionaries and what if something and what if they go yeah but what about tomorrow yeah but what if they get into then they don't if something bad happens what about tomorrow yeah but I mean I just really need this money if I don't have this money now I need to save it up what about tomorrow See, this is what God is asking. Will you trust me for tomorrow? Last one. God fulfills his promise. That's verse 11 to verse 21. We won't read it tonight. You can read it later. Verse 11 to verse 21. Guess what happens in the evening? Quail falls. Guess what happens in the morning? Manna falls. We've said this over and over and over for two, and, for two years here at First Baptist. Here's what we've said. God is good for his word. There are not a lot of people in this world that you can trust, but you can trust God. So guess what happens in verse 11? Bread rains down from heaven. Now, we're church people, and this is Sunday night crowd, so we're like, that's great. Are we dismissed? And it's easy to overlook this singular truth. God rained bread down from heaven. Think about that. You walk out in the morning, Pop-Tarts all over your front yard. What? Save some of these for later. And God is the same. What's that great verse? Oh yeah, God is the same. Yesterday, he was asking them to trust him. And you know what he's asking you? Trust me. Trust me. You either have a spirit of gratitude in that you trust the Lord or you have a spirit of grumbling in that you're complaining against the Lord. So here it is for me and for you today. What spirit do we have? I want a spirit of gratitude. That's what I want. I don't always hit the mark. And neither do you. So don't look at me all judgmental-like. But I want a spirit of gratitude, don't you? So let us trust the Lord.